friends, my name is Kathy Ritchie, and I like to talk about things that can make most people uncomfortable. And my latest podcast really hits a nail on the head. It's called Period, The End, But Not Really, and it's about menopause. The fact is, anyone with ovaries will go through menopause, and most will have symptoms. We're talking hot flashes, anxiety, sleepless nights, vaginal dryness, even abnormal bleeding. In Period the End, I aim to give you more information from menopause experts because this chapter of life can be gut-wrenching, exhausting, and just plain confusing. Information is power for you, your partner, your children, your friends, and colleagues. The other thing, this can be an incredibly isolating time for women, and now more than ever, we need connection. So let's get a little uncomfortable. In this episode, we dive into the big why. Why do we go through the change? We know pretty much everything related to our bodies happens for a reason. We have breasts for a reason, we have thumbs for a reason, and we go through menopause, possibly, for a very good reason. At least that's what some have hypothesized. I first heard of Kristen Hawkes, a distinguished professor of anthropology at the University of Utah, when I was reading the book Menopause Manifesto by Dr. Jen Gunter. So Gunter, who was not available for this podcast, wrote, and by the way, I'm summarizing here, that when we think about evolution, we often think about survival of the fittest. But that doesn't apply to postmenopausal women because they're no longer able to reproduce. However, they can protect their genetic lineage by taking care of their grandchildren. Enter Hawks and the grandmother hypothesis. Her interest in grandmothers, which was a happy accident, by the way, began in the early 1980s when she was studying the Hadza people, one of the last hunter-gatherer tribes left in the Great Rift Valley in Africa. It's a part of the world where we know our uh, genus evolved, and it's also a place where these really big ungulates, these big herbivores, are doing very well. Think giraffes, pigs, and zebras, and wildebeest. Lots of countries just on the southern edge of the Serengeti, and where the carnivores that compete for eating those guys are also there. Hawks tells me that Hadza men would go out sometimes twice a day to hunt, and hopefully they bring something back for the entire community to eat. Except when they don't. The failure rate is so high, they succeed less than 5% of the days. Which means you've got to eat something else. Okay, slight detour here, but I promise it'll all come together. And the kind of beast we are, you have to eat every day, and that's especially true of, of little kids. So what's up with that? And let me just throw in the comparison with what we now know about the other living great apes. It is the case that the infants within the first year, while mom is still carrying them along and they're nursing, they are starting to feed themselves. Hawks is talking about chimpanzees, and this part is really important. And so this comparison between us and the other great apes is so striking that, that the babies are starting to do this already within the first year. They're still drinking milk from mom, but when they're weaned, they get their own lunch. They are entirely feeding themselves. 
Human babies, not so much. Another difference between us humans and, say, chimpanzees are our birth intervals. Humans don't have to wait very long to conceive another little human and then another, whereas a chimpanzee mom has to wait until her baby is entirely weaned and feeding itself. This bit is also important. Female fertility in humans and other living apes ends roughly at around the same age. But in those apes, fertility and survival sort of go hand in hand. In other words, it's rare for a female ape to live beyond fertility. So keep all of that in your back pocket as we go back to the modern-day Hadza tribe where Hawks is still observing the male hunters and their efforts to bring back a decent meal, which isn't happening as frequently as we might expect. But like Hawks said, we gotta eat. So instead of big game, everyone is digging up and consuming tubers or root vegetables. But the plants that are doing so well in these savanna environments are things that little kids cannot effectively handle. So it's really different from those 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 chimpanzee babies that are not even one yet and the the leaves and the soft fruits that they're feeding themselves. Which means mom has to get involved. But if mom is heavily pregnant and possibly nursing that one or two-year-old, digging up root vegetables, things like potatoes or yams, becomes way more difficult. That's when Hawks has this aha moment. As part of their research with the Hadza, Hawks is also weighing and measuring everything, including the kiddos themselves. And so we could see that they were depending on their moms in the weights until she had a new baby. (laughs) And then, no, it isn't that she didn't forage anymore. She did. But her attention is slightly different. And so now how well these kids were doing and how well they were growing depended on their grandmothers. And so there was this trade up right before our eyes where moms could have another baby without the previous one, you know, being curtains for that kid. They are subsidized by grandmothers. And that's how the grandmother hypothesis you know, came finally into focus for us. Hawks watched these grandmothers helping their daughters with all sorts of motherly tasks, like digging up those stubborn root vegetables to feed those itty-bitty toddlers who really can't, so their mother could continue to produce more offspring and therefore more descendants. Now, this is a super simplified explanation of Hawks's work. The grandmother hypothesis is built upon the research of other individuals. But her work showed that there is a correlation between a baby's continued growth and a grandma's effort to subsidize her grandchild's diet. Our grandmothers were everything. They improved our chances of survival, and it was because they no longer had to worry about getting pregnant. It's intriguing to think about our postmenopausal role in this way, that no longer being fertile is actually an evolutionary advantage if we want to pass on our genes, versus how it's often framed, at least in our society today, which is that we're no longer of use. And that clearly couldn't be further from the truth. Next time on Period the End, we talk about menopause around the globe. Well, I think you'd be surprised by how similar it is in many places, and at least in terms of hot flashes. I'm Kathy Ritchie, and thanks for listening. 